Alyssa, there is so much to talk about based on our conversation today with Delphine Rourke, who's a partner at Goodwin focusing in health and women's health from a legal perspective. She'll do all the banter, but it's such a complicated and fascinating and continually changing space, which is, I think, what keeps both of us excited. Yeah, she is super subspecialized in the field of law. And look, coming from my perspective, I usually don't like to talk to lawyers too much. But in this case, I just couldn't get enough conversation. So let's speak to her. Welcome to the business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so excited to have our guest today, Delphine O'Rourke, who's a partner at Goodwin and has created, I believe, the first national law practice that really has a specific focus on women's health, which she'll define for us, but is, you know, a broad definition the way Alyssa and I think about it. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. So it is great to see you. I get to see you uh, a lot of different places. Our paths cross a lot. Uh, And one of the things that has always been so interesting to me is how, as an attorney, you're at the center of some of these really critical discussions about the patient needs that Alyssa is responding to and the businesses that are being created and what companies and physicians need to know to walk all those delicate balancing acts effectively. So Start a little bit about how you got to, from healthcare generally, to another specific deeper focus on women's health and how you think about that space. Happy to. So, you know, women's health, when I started practicing law, was, you know, as crazy as this may sound, was just such a small area. It was, you know, so you advise physicians on their practices, maybe developing a GYN clinic. It was really a limited area. So I did as much as I could, but there really wasn't, there wasn't this business of women's health the way that there is now. Real fast forward is I did, again, every opportunity I could, was it whether it was volunteering for an organization or with existing clients, like, okay, this touches on women's health. Then when there was reform, and we'll touch about, you know, we'll touch on the impact of legislation, but when states started looking at how do we change the care that we're delivering, how do we create payment models for Medicaid, they needed more and more lawyers involved with that process. So that was an opportunity to really say, hi, you know, this isn't just a clinical issue. This is a legal issue and you need lawyers. And the other piece of it is um, I worked for a very large health company. and. roughly of babies in the U.S. are born in hospitals. So when you're looking at maternal health, which is an area that was really interested in, 
I could see the results because I was very involved with risk and looking at, you know, outcomes for moms, outcomes for infants. And there again, there's a big legal piece that I work really closely with physicians with labor and delivery and saying, what can we do from a sort of legal clinical point to move the needle and improve the outcomes and stop seeing the same injuries, same issues over and over again? So is it fair to say that in that role, you wore two hats? I mean, you you want there to be healthy outcomes for the mom and the baby, and you also want to reduce the number of legal suits and cases that there are. And hopefully if we have the outcomes better, we'll have fewer lawsuits. Or did I draw a conclusion that's not fair? No. So the thing is that I'm always about the patient first. So that's why I have some clients who, who maybe aren't making that much money. But it's patient first. And I think what it was is ally. And we met because of connections. It's how do you align? That's what I learned is talking to the lawyer isn't always somebody's first choice. But thinking about how can I advance their agenda? How can we align? And the clinicians have, I'm not delivering babies, okay? But what I can do is see where are their policies that that could improve outcomes? What could we do around resources? How could we analyze differently? Is saying, what can I do to contribute to advancing the health and wellness of women? I didn't want to be a physician. And at one point I'm like, okay, what can I do? And what are the skills that I have to, to make change? Yeah. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say talking to the lawyer in regard to like maternal fetal health is never my first choice. So no, no, uh, no insult intended, but I like to stay out of that realm. I want to broaden this a little bit because I think one of the most, the biggest thorns in my side, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is the electronic medical record. I don't know how much input or interest you have in this, but this is literally the bane of our existence because had us speak about taking care of people and putting patient first, there is no bigger hindrance to this than the electronic medical record, which is so overwhelming. I could probably see double the patient number that I see if I didn't have to deal with this record and I just have the old fashioned thing in front of me. Now, I may be just aging myself and dating myself, but Do you have any thoughts on that and whether that has, is there data to suggest that this has actually helped medical care? Because I'm guessing it hasn't. I think it's a great example of a good idea in theory. The idea initially was you'd have all of your information, patient information, easily accessible. The physician wouldn't have to go through a folio of old charts and pick up the one that was most relevant. Also, when you went to the emergency room, again, that there was interoperability, you could pull data from different systems. And the idea, I think, was a good one. Okay, we have, you know, more coordinated care, more efficient care. And when you look at where there were a lot of mistakes, and I'm sure you've looked at this, when you do, you know, mistakes in the health system, it's handoffs. Particularly in hospitals, handoffs are a sort of a point of weakness. For people who are listening, you know, my visual is obviously, you know, passing the baton in a 400 meter race where each person does 100 meters. Alyssa, talk a little bit about in a hospital setting what that means, because there are different places that the baton can drop. Right. So handoff essentially just means 
you know, one team or one person who's caring for a particular patient uh, has to leave at some point. They can't be there 24-7, 365, although sometimes it feels like we are. And they need to give a sign out, like an update and an outline of what has gone on with patient care so that the next team can adequately take care of uh, that patient and be brought up to snuff with their information clinically. I also would like to say that one positive of electronic medical records is legibility because after all, we are known for our horrifying handwriting and illegibility of course doesn't help anybody. And I'm gonna subscribe to the, I have terrible handwriting camp, but uh, so I think that's been something positive. Um, but nonetheless, it's overwhelming. Everything seems to get duplicated. You will get a stack of, you know, 3,000 pages rather than a summary of 10 because everything's being repeated a thousand times. But I guess all in all, I agree, it's been a great idea and maybe it just is not implemented as well as it could because there isn't just one universal electronic medical record, but many. So the idea that records are talking to each other and that everybody can sort of have a collaborative approach on a record is not always as good as it sounds because there are multiple different records. There are multiple records, you know, so then you have these interoperability rules that come in and say, well, you have to be connected. Because some companies were saying, well, I'm not going to connect with the other one. And then the physicians have to type in while they're talking to the patient. The patients feel like, wait a second, I'm here for my visit. You already don't have much time for me. And I'm looking at your back. Then some physicians get scribes. So all of a sudden you have a scribe in the office and you're like, why is there another person here who's like listening to my story? I've always focused on innovation. Okay. So I think the electronic medical record was version 1.10. And then I was like, let me say 1.1. So now who's going to come up with, and you could layer it on, because look at all the obligations that physicians have to, all the physician practices in the hospitals. Part of why there was always a wanted electronic medical record is to be able to pull up data. So how many of your patients are diabetic? Pull up data. What's your average blood loss for surgery? Pull up data. Okay, that was sort of the, a part of the idea also, is that we'd have all this data on our patients that we could use for better clinical outcomes. But as we know, as a result, it's like totally clunky. You don't get the right data. You get 16 times the data on the same patient. But what could that next iteration be? And I'm seeing some really, really cool technology that will layer on to the EHRs that are existing to be able to pull data in a very different way and interface with physicians in a very different way. Because you probably spend, um, I mean, you spend, everybody says it, I spend more time doing my electronic medical records than I ever did my paper charts. So let's, I was going to just jump in and say, luckily, the younger generation of practitioners are just so adept at, uh, you know, electronic anything. So hopefully that will be easier as they uh, rise up in the the level. So from your perspective, you see a lot of innovation. You're in the middle of a lot of um, transactions that are happening. So I have two big questions. Uh, The first is, what are you seeing in terms of trends where the most innovation is happening, either on the clinician side, on the delivery of care, in the options for care? Where are you seeing, and the answer could be everywhere, where are you seeing the greatest amount of energy and traffic and activity? So I'm seeing the greatest amount of activity in digital health. Anything that's tech-enabled, platforms, mobile apps, for a variety of reasons, is 
okay, AA people are looking for solutions. Every tech, anything tech is attractive. It seems innovative. The barriers to entry are lower and it's not cheap to develop an app. And it's a lot cheaper than rebuilding your emergency department staff. So it's almost like you can get a quick win on some of the digital tech applications. What the harder lift is how to reform some of the issues that we were just talking about, whether it's electronic medical record or maternal health, some of these really systemic issues, the heavy lift issue, where one app is not going to change either access or clinical outcomes or reimbursement. So a lot of activities in digital health where we're really seeing investment is those solutions that are going to have a real impact and a lasting impact. The scalability is big. I mean, yes, you can be successful having a product that meets the needs of a small portion of the population, but to really shift health, if we're looking at through the macro level of health in the United States, it needs to be collaborative. So those are the bigger challenges. A lot of activity in telemedicine, tele-anything we saw through the pandemic. And that continues in a, what's going to be, again, the next iteration. So everybody's doing tele. Some of the physicians are frustrated with aspects of it. So how can you refine it, make it better? But telemedicine is going to continue. You know, we're seeing now platforms that are even more secure, that have more modalities, that are is it connected with electronic medical records, for example? So I think really where the opportunity is, is where do you bridge the traditional health system and the innovation? Because they can benefit from both. So really that, and we're seeing more of an appetite. Health systems have been so focused on caring for patients and dealing with COVID that there wasn't maybe capacity to think about, oh, what would be a really supportive app in the fertility space? If we collaborate, if we partner, there was a lot of great products, new medical devices in women's health. Is we're starting to see more of that horizontal collaboration. We're saying these are big issues and a lot of solutions will be impactful than one standalone solution. I have quite a bit of experience with telehealth. I think it really saved us during um, the pandemic time when things were super active with COVID. Not that they're not still active, but uh, when we were unable to do surgery for three or four months, when we physically couldn't go into the office for a couple of months. Definitely. In any event, I see positive things like access. You know, there we all have the patients who are literally having a telehealth visit from their little cubicle in their office because they can't take time off work to come to the doctor for whatever it is. And so they can access telehealth platform. And that seems to uh, be not that uncommon. So access is great. The other thing that I noticed personally is a sort of a window into somebody's life that you've never seen before and that you never would have access to. I mean, I've literally had women do telehealth appointments with me from the bathroom because either they're having a problem that requires them to be there or because it's the only place they could get privacy. And that means a lot to me as a physician, I get a different window into the picture of what's going on for them. Yeah. On the flip side, I just wonder what is missing because we're not hands-on. Is there increased liability for us as practitioners, which of course we're always thinking about because of this. So where do you stand on this? Tell them how 
was critical, particularly for women. And when you see the engagement levels I mean, during COVID, after COVID, what they call super users, you know, people with six plus visits, um, particularly in um, for mental health and for sexual health, GYN. And we hear over and over again, and the data supports that women were more comfortable talking about, to your point, issues that would, you know, issues that were women, women's health issues through telehealth than they were maybe even if in a physician's office. And same with mental health. Now, sometimes it was more comfortable. Other times it was just, hey, I'm taking care of kids and parents and this and that, and I just don't have time for myself. And again, data supports that women uh, put their family's health first and often defer their own care for their families, that their families can get care. What's also interesting about telehealth is that when you look at the uh, adoption rates, it's actually the Latino community that was the highest in, in engagement and adoption, Latino women, followed by Black women and then white women, which is not what had been predicted. And same with when you look at sort of 60 plus, there had been this view of, oh, and I was in so many conversations. Our 60 plus patients will never use telehealth. Well, guess what? The data supports the opposite. And again, the AARP, interestingly, has a report on telemedicine and they're very supportive because their constituents supported it and want to continue to be able to use telehealth. Again, in population, like Black men over 60, I don't think that many health systems expected that. They thought telemedicine was going to be for the 30 and under crowd. I think that has been tremendous because it's been, instead of no care, they're getting care. Then we can get to the issue of, do you miss something? You know, there we have a physician shortage. We had a physician shortage, a provider shortage, even before COVID. Unless there is, I don't even know what the solution would be at this point, because it used to be, oh, open up to more GME spots. But that's not the solution. You, there aren't enough people who want to be physicians. Every year there are fewer. And that's a crisis that we don't talk about that is going to hit us so hard that seeing a physician is going to become a luxury. And we started talking about it more during COVID because of a lot of reasons. Unfortunately, burnout because the demands of treating patients, actual loss of healthcare lives, healthcare worker lives. So there's a lot here. And you know, I'm not a physician. I have excellent handwriting. Um, and <laughs> you do hear, and maybe that's what, that's why I didn't become a doctor. Maybe that's why you didn't become a physician. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to touch anyone. And yeah. it's like, oh, uh, can, like I can look at it, but when it comes to, so I was like, maybe a physician thought it could fit. But in um, any case, I mean, I think that the trend towards that shortage is only set to get worse, given what the healthcare community has experienced in the last few years. Oh, uh, but Alyssa, I know, you, I know you wanted to jump in with something else. No, I was very interested to hear your stat about the older population, yeah. even older 65, who I actually thought was going to suffer with all the telehealth because perhaps they didn't feel adept enough with uh, the platforms. But I'm really glad to hear that my thought was wrong. Also for rural populations, I think that's really important, especially for a subspecialty type of care. But I do worry about the number of physicians because physician extenders and other healthcare providers are invaluable. The training is just different. So I hope that the supply gets replenished. 
Head of um, head, talk about your the risk profile because that fits with sort of providers. I might miss something. I'm not seeing them. I only see them on TV. I only or not TV on the Zoom or whatever. I see them from the shoulders up. Okay, there's so much. But when you think about your health visit, there's a lot that when you're sitting around, even as a patient, there's a lot of into. There's a lot that could be done. I'm not saying for acute issues, and there's always going to be risk, but there are a lot of patients who don't come in, and that sort of also highlights the social determinants of health, who don't get any care because they don't have anybody to drive them. They're too frail to get on a bus. They're afraid they're going to get sick when they get to the hospital, so they're not getting any care at all. What do you think that there are certain states in the United States where there is one psychiatrist? It creates more personal risk for the physician, which is something that needs to be addressed. But it's almost like, okay, is it that much worse? Is it nothing? And I'm not saying it's inferior care. It's different care. And what I hope is that we will have more diagnostics. And this is an area of innovation, is the concept of before COVID, I put out this idea of we're going to have in-home clinics. Just like we have home gyms, I mean, people can afford to do it. But we're also seeing it in different areas for all different um, socioeconomic backgrounds. People have home gyms, they have home theaters, home this, that, and the other. Home clinics where there's going to be more and more that you can do at home, whether it's self-testing, self-monitoring, imaging, and you're going to be able to feed that to your physician. And we're seeing in community living, same thing. A space that's set up where if you're of diabetes, you can go. Um, and that is partially to address the issue of you don't have enough physicians to treat 50 people who have diabetes. So how can you manage some of the symptoms remotely? So, you know, Rachel, to your question of where is their innovation, anything where the patient is becoming or the consumer more in control and at the center and saying, okay, I could do this myself. Now, obviously, there's some risk in that. You better make sure that the directions are clear. But look, now every tech does their own COVID test. At the beginning of COVID, the idea that you could co- you know, that you could test yourself sounded crazy. It's a so, great example. I mean, just we forget that because we've been in so many phases that you can now figure out if you have COVID without getting out of bed practically. I just went to a conference and in the bag that they give you, you know, sort of the polyester bag with the conference stuff was a COVID test. It was like the giveaway. And I thought, wow. That's like in two years. That's that's up swag. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was was a healthcare conference. They would have like a law firm monogram on that or something or logo for. uh, Yeah. It's going to be like pregnancy test. It's going to be, you know, off we go. So here's today's hot flash. It has been estimated that only about 71% of providers accept Medicaid. That's compared to 85% who take Medicare and 90% that accept private insurance. Well, we could talk about a, a million things. I mean, there's so many issues. And one of the reasons we wanted to have you is because you bring such a different perspective. You intersect with the system in a very different way than entrepreneurs do, than investors do, than healthcare practitioners do. So this might be a layup, and I'm sure there's more than one answer. Given everything that's going on right now in terms of legislation and policymaking that impacts women's health, are there two or three biggest changes you've seen in the course of your practicing that have had the biggest or have the potential to have the biggest impact 
on outcomes, on truly how health is delivered and how people fare with that care delivery. Were you referencing post-Grow or just in general? Well, I mean, Grow's obviously a perfect yeah. example. Okay. We have all kinds of models that suggest what we think is going to happen. Are there ones in the past that have had that same kind of, oh my gosh, impact where everybody stops and says, now what? For the be- And even for the better, hopefully mm-hmm. there's some circumstances where they say, wow, this is great. I'm going to take that question and sort of unpack it. Because abortion in the U.S. is a lot more, and in other countries, but I'll just speak speak for us, is a lot more than just medical care. There are a lot of other issues tied to it. There are religious considerations. There's a lot there, which is part of the reason that it makes it such a emotional topic for many people. And complicated on so many. And complicated. Healthcare in general is very emotional. It's an emotional field. Because you are dealing with the rawest issues. You're dealing with life and death and suffering. And if you don't have emotion associated with that, then, you know, maybe you should be in different space. Not as extreme, but the Affordable Care Act, remember, that was politically charged. And some of the, not identical, but we also thought in COVID, you know, these rights to privacy, to individual autonomy, You know, I'm going to wear a mask. I don't have to wear a mask. There are a lot of similar themes. And what I think we saw the Affordable Care Act was a push to say, how are we going to cover, provide insurance to more Americans? Because we feel very comfortable talking about health care. We're less comfortable having an open and conversation about who's paying for health care. You know, because nobody really wants to say, eh, I don't really feel like paying for prenatal vitamins. No one wants to go on the record saying that. And it's so the Affordable Care Act was very significant again because its views of federalism versus states, of how much should the government been involved, how dare they tell me that I need to pay a tax. And what I find interesting there is, and there's some similarities to post-Roe, is the conversation about, oh, we are never going to be a socialist country. We're not going to have a healthcare system that's run by the government. Well, pause. The government is the largest insurer in the United States. Now, is it 56%, 58% of Americans, and the stats change, but it's always the majority or has been for, until recent memory, the government is the largest payer. So this concept of we don't pay, we don't want to pay for our neighbor's care is already misplaced. You already paid for your neighbor's care. So let's get over that and say we already pay for our neighbor's care. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we're already doing it. So how can we all row in the same direction and increase access, increase political outcomes, decrease spend? Because everybody has an interest in decreasing spend. We spend so much money as a country on healthcare, and our outcomes do not reflect the amount of money it is invested. It's like our tax dollars that go into healthcare have poor ROI. You would never invest in that if your tax dollars are doing. 
So from my perspective as a gynecologist, and I don't know any statistics, did the Affordable Care Act actually help patients? Did they have better access and payment for birth control if they were interested in family planning of that nature? Uh, you know, teen pregnancy rates, did that change as a result of the institution of the Affordable Care Act? Um, I don't know. So, you know, I'd say I would keep some key thoughts on that is that it did expand Medicaid in many states. So people who didn't have insurance before and insurance isn't the solution. If you have insurance, but there are no physicians who can see you or want to see you because you're on Medicaid, which is a problem that we also don't like talking about as a society, that if you don't have good insurance, a lot of physicians don't want to see you, right. um, you know, and can subtly make that choice. Expanded Medicaid, there was a requirement that employers cover contraceptives. Now, there were some carve-outs for religious employers and others. Also, pre-existing conditions. I mean, again, we don't talk about pre-existing conditions anymore. That used to be huge. Yeah. If you had a cancer diagnosis, you could not get insured. I shouldn't say you couldn't get easily insured. I'm sure there were some exceptions. And you would often stay in a job longer because... Perhaps you didn't have that condition when you started, but if you went to a new company to get the, on their insurance would be quite a hassle. Exactly. So those aren't necessarily like sexy changes. We are like, oh, wow, we got rid of pre-existing conditions. Now, I'm going to go look up the statistics, but that was really significant for your poor and vulnerable. Now, the states then, a lot of states pushed back and didn't expand Medicaid. Many states did, and that made more coverage for kids. I mean, that's, again, sort of secondary casualty to lack of insurance for moms. It's their kids. Yeah. So another big, if we're talking about sort of legal impact, that's not over. And I think this is an area where Dobbs, post-Troy is super important. It's not the entire conversation far from it in women's health. And there are a lot of other areas that need attention we need to focus on. The public health emergency during COVID and continues relaxed certain laws so that people could access, so you could have telemedicine. The public health emergency will eventually end and there's uncertainty around, well, what will that look like? And what is the definition of its end? What is the definition of its end? And now what we're seeing is it'll end, but then there'll be 180, 180 days for this to transition. So there was the theme, I think, in healthcare of constantly changing. And why, from a lawyer's perspective, and do I think being a lawyer in health is so interesting, is that we are the most regulated industry. And why you need to come and talk to us first. <laughs> I said, I never want to talk to you. I have a problem. Like, I wouldn't. Said, I used to be in the house and say, I want to be in the physician's lounge. Like, I want us to get to know each other so that when we do have an issue, you see me as your ally to be proactive, not your reactive. You know, I love that. I absolutely love that, especially as someone who practiced obstetrics for over 25 years. Um, so I, I have to say, I honestly think that my field is just so ripe for disruption. And there is nothing that speaks to that more than the recent Amazon and one medical deal. Can't necessarily comment on that deal, but I see this as the wave of the future. So I can't wait to see what goes on with that in time. But with that, what has been your favorite deal to work on in healthcare? 
if you can think of one, in women's healthcare? So I can't tell you who, but I'm super proud. One of my girlfriends was involved heavily with that deal. So uh, super proud of her. And I love the fact that it's, you know, she's a woman, she's a superstar and really excited. So I always say we have to amplify each other, amplify our successes because it lifts everybody up. Oh, I wonder who he was. Who was the lawyer worked on that? It was Pinky. And I was like, so, <laughs> so that I love. Um, I don't think I've had a favorite deal. You know, because it's like your children. Do you love one more than the other? I mean, I only have two, so I only have two to pick from. Um, so, but you know, what would obviously be left out? You know, I enjoy small deals, big deals. It's what are, I, well, A, if the people are fun and interesting to work with, you know, like, and that, and that comes across anyone who has had the opportunity to spend time with you. This stuff really excites you and, I don't totally. know what people's impressions are of attorneys, but like bursting with enthusiasm is not necessarily a stereotype that I would have had. Um, but that's, no, what, that's so. almost, like, you're not like usual lawyers. Yeah. I mean, first of all, and also, yeah, I get super excited about certain topics. And when I see a solution that I think can make a difference, like there's somewhere I'm like, oh, that's good. And it might sort of nibble at the edges. Okay, but when I see something, I'm like, wow, that's going to have impact. That's what gets me excited. You know, it's how can we make that a success? And I say we because I jump into we right away. Like, I am part of you. And if you're not, like, excited about me being part of your team the way I am, then maybe we're not a good fit. How can we be successful? And does that mean, I mean, you need a legal strategy. You need introductions. You need to... um it is, I might not be able to do all of it, but I know a lot of people and I'll brainstorm with you. And how do we advance that? I mean, at the end of the day, why do I do what I do is because I want to improve the health of women. But I think that's a great place to end because it's such a big statement. And, you know, from my perspective as an entrepreneur and investor and from Alyssa's as a physician. I'm sure we can all agree. It's great to have you on this team of this rising tide, raising all boats. And, you know, I hope that people who are listening today understand as many dementias as Alyssa and I try to bring to the table, there's even more. There's so <laughs> many other layers and roles and responsibilities that are involved in identifying opportunities for better care, administering them, and then measuring the impact. So, Thank you so much. And I certainly look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much. And I think it's part of, you know, this is why we will succeed because of collaborations and the passion and the skill that so many people are bringing to the women's health space. So really, it's a privilege. And um, I will see you soon. Thank you so much. It was great to have you. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.